This morning we are looking at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, so we'll begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 4 and read through verse 6 of chapter 5. Please give your full attention to God's holy word. Come now, you rich. I'm sorry, let me start back at 13. Come now. They both start the same way. That's what threw me off. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The Bible consistently teaches us that it's a good thing to plan. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's a truism that scripture acknowledges in life in this fallen world. That when we plan, it provides for our future. But when we are hasty, and the idea there is that we are impulsive or spontaneous, that we live without a plan, our lives will come to poverty. But the plans that we make have to be driven by an ultimate goal. When we make plans, we have to be focused on where ultimately we're trying to go, where are we trying to get to. Reminds me of that familiar scene from the story Alice in Wonderland when Alice is wandering through this strange, bizarre world and she comes upon the Cheshire Cat sitting up on the branch of the tree. And Alice shouts up to the cat and says, Will you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care, said Alice. Well, then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. He's making the same point that I'm trying to make here. Where are you trying to get to? What's your ultimate goal? That'll provide your motivation for the plans that you make in life. And that's what's most important to our God. Where is your heart in your planning? Many of us will say, I want, to know what, I want to know God's will for my life. I hear that question a lot from Christians. What's God's will for my life? I just want to know. In other words, tell me which way to go, Lord. 
And he says, well, where are you trying to get to? And if you say, well, I don't really care, then he'll say, well, go ahead and wander. In chapter 4, as we saw last week, James has been dealing with the sin of pride in the church. Pride which causes quarrels and fights in the church. Pride which causes people to be selfish and worldly. Pride which leads people to slander others and to judge others. And we saw last week that the central message of this chapter, chapter 4, is found in verses 6 and 10, where James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And what we see as we move now to the end of chapter 4 is that James applies this teaching about pride to how we look at our futures to how we make our plans in life. In verse 13, he quotes people in the church. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Obviously, he's thinking of a particular subset of the church, a particular group of people in the church, the merchants, the business people. And actually, in the first century, it was a really important current issue, so to speak, because businesses had taken off in many ways because of what we call Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because of the power that the Roman Empire had and the rule that the Roman Empire had. They were able to build beautiful roads from provinces to other provinces to countries to countries and made travel much easier. And because of the power of Rome and the armies of Rome, they made those trips that you would make, business trips, made it a lot safer with your goods as you carried them to another place. And so this was really a current issue, and a lot of people were prospering in business and, and getting rich. And so James addresses them, and as he describes the conversation that these business people are having among themselves, it sounds just like a good sales meeting or business meeting, doesn't it? It sounds like a bunch of salespeople studying, sitting around the table studying demographics and projections and sales figures and long-term strategic plans. What's really wrong with talking about your plans for the future and plans for your business and a plan even to make money? Well, the sin that James is addressing here isn't capitalism. The sin isn't making a profit or even prospering and becoming wealthy. That's not the sin that he's addressing. The sin that he's addressing is revealed in their hearts. In verse 16, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. When you think about your future plans, the plans you have for the rest of your life, for the future beyond, are your plans boasts in the eyes of the Lord? Are your plans about self-exaltation, as we saw last week? I would think that as we consider this this morning, I think we're going to find that many of the plans that we have made in our hearts are really boasting in the, boasting in the ways of the world, about self-exaltation. And so this isn't a message only for the business people in our midst. This is, and James is really targeting this to everyone, because he's talking about how do we make plans? How do we look at our future? And how do we make plans for the future? 
Where ultimately are we trying to go? How do we stop planning like a pagan? How do we stop planning as the world plans? Three messages I see in this passage. First of all, you need to always acknowledge who is Lord of your future. Who is Lord of your future? Look at verse 14. James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Again, a truism. <laughs> Plainly obvious. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, we live by probabilities, don't we? I mean, I'm like 99% sure that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. I'm about 90, 95% sure that I'm going to have a job when I go to work tomorrow. And I'm about 75% sure my car will start. That's a lot better than it used to be. It used to be about 40%, 50%. But we live by those probabilities, and how we establish those probabilities is looking at the track record. As Christians, we know we're looking at the track record of God's faithfulness to us. This is how God has worked in our lives in the past, and based on that, I do expect the sun to come up tomorrow. But I don't know that for sure. You don't know that for sure. No one can guarantee what's going to happen tomorrow, or whether you're even going to be here to be a part of it. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I'd suggest you write that on your mirror so you see it first thing in the morning. Memorize it so you can take it along with you the rest of the day. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Reminds me of that very familiar parable that Jesus taught, the parable about the rich, wealthy landowner who had an abundant harvest one year, much more than he had planned for. And what was he to do with all his excess? Well, it says in the parable that this rich man said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now again, this rich man was planning by probabilities of what he had known in the past. But what he left out of the equation was God's sovereignty. He acted as though he was the master of his own destiny. And so God comes to this rich man and he says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? He hadn't factored in the sovereignty of God. And so that's why James says, here's what he teaches us in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, James isn't questioning the fact that these business people were making plans for their business or planning for profit, planning to expand their business. That's not what he takes issue with. He takes issue with the fact that they didn't preface their plans with the statement, if the Lord wills, this is what I will do. If you go back 100 years, 200 years, especially three or 400 years, and you read the writings of Christians, if if Christians were writing to someone else, and this is, I'm talking about using a pen or paper and, you know, writing in longhand. For those of you who don't know what writing a letter it is, you know, this, when they would write letters, they would put in there, if they were going to make a statement about their future, if they're going to say, 
I'll be glad to meet with you next week. They would always put, Lord willing. Or they would use an abbreviation, DV. Have you ever seen that? And sometimes, you'll, once in a while, you'll still see that. They'll say, I will meet with you next week, and then D period, V period. That's Deo Vellante. It's an abbreviation for Deo Vellante, which in Latin means Lord willing. That used to be the way Christians talked to one another. Making plans, yes, but submitting them to the authority and sovereignty of the God that we serve because we don't know the future and we certainly don't control the future. Lord willing. That's the way Paul talked. Let me give you just a few examples. Acts chapter 18, Paul is talking to the Corinthian, or I'm sorry, the Ephesian elders in Acts 18, and he says to them, I will come back if it is God's will. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then at the end of that same epistle in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he told them, I do not want to see you, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Lord willing, this is what I plan to do. Now I know that in the past that little phrase became a cliche. You know, it got overused and it got used to the point where people didn't mean it sincerely. It's just something they tacked on because they were supposed to. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. It just means we need to stop using it mindlessly. We need to mean it when we say it. We need to be acknowledging God's sovereignty when we make our plans. I will do this, or I will do that, Lord willing. Last week, we talked about prayerlessness, and we said that prayerlessness is a sign of pride in your life. If you're not praying, it's because pride has taken hold in your life. Well, here we see that prayerlessness is also a denial of Christ's lordship over the future. If you really believe that God is sovereign, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your future then you, you are going to pray because he's the Lord. Jesus taught us to pray daily, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you notice the language of the prayer that he taught to his disciples, what we call the Lord's Prayer, the language assumes that you're going to be praying this daily. And one of the things he tells us that we are to be praying daily is that we are to pray, your will be done, not my will be done. And secondly, he taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. To live with that kind of dependence. You remember that he taught the Israelites how to live in daily dependence by giving them manna. And manna only lasted for a day. They weren't allowed to store up manna for tomorrow or next week or next month. They weren't allowed to store it up. They had to depend upon the Lord daily to provide for their needs. Now, he didn't always provide that way. Later, he would provide through harvests and storage and all that. But it was important in, their, in this formative stage of their relationship with the Lord to understand that we are to live in daily dependence upon him. So the first step in planning like a child of God and not planning like a pagan is to remember and acknowledge who is the Lord of your future. Secondly, acknowledge the brevity of your life. Acknowledge the brevity of your life. James says to us, what is your life? For you are a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Your life is a mist. Literally, that word in the original Greek is probably best translated like a puff of smoke. That's your life, your 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life on this planet. From God's perspective, it's just a puff of smoke. It reminds us of what Solomon taught us in the book of Ecclesiastes. When he looked at things under the sun, when he looked at the world without taking God into account, without factoring God into his plans and his life, and he looked at what we have in this world, what we value in this world, riches and status and wisdom, and he looked at it and his bottom line conclusion of the value of it all, he said this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all a puff of smoke. That's what he's saying. That's one of Scripture's foundational truths. You'll see it from page one all the way to the last page of God's Word. Something that we are to be always conscious of, and we need to be reminded over and over because of our sinful tendency to forget it right away, is that life is extremely brief, and our life is extremely fragile. Listen to Isaiah in chapter 40 of Isaiah. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, we need to be focused on eternity when we make our plans. Not on this brief wisp of a life. How you view your future determines how you plan in the present. That's another truism. How you view your future will determine how you make plans in the present. If you were to come up to me and say, Dan, I'm concerned about you. Have you been making provision for your retirement? Have you been putting money away? Are you sure you're going to have enough for retirement? And I were to say, oh, yeah, I'm absolutely confident. I'm good there. Don't worry about me. I've got everything I need for retirement. I have put away enough money so that I can live comfortably for six months. And you would say, you're a fool. Six months? But that's nothing compared to how God looks at you and you plan for 80 years on this world, in this world. Or you plan for the rest of the next 60 years of your life, next 40 years of life, next 20 years of life. When you plan and all your plans are based on that time frame, God says, you're a fool. You're going to exist for eternity. Why are all your plans centered on this little wisp of a time that you have in this world. In order to not plan like a pagan, to plan like a child of God, you need to make your plans in light of eternity. It'll change the way you make plans. Let me read to you from Psalm 39. A lot of wisdom here. Listen to what David says in Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. When's the last time you prayed that in your morning prayer? Lord, show me how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. That's that eternal perspective that transforms the plans in the present. 
The third instruction that James gives us about how to not plan like a pagan, but plan like a child of God, is that we are to acknowledge the dangers of earthly wealth. Now, why does he bring up money and possessions here? Why does that become a crucial issue when it comes to thinking about planning for the future? Well, think about the plans you've made during the course of your life. Don't they mostly deal with money and possessions? I mean, early in your life, during your education, you make plans about how to get a good job, to get the education and credentials you need so that you can get a good job so that you can have enough money and possessions to live a comfortable life. Isn't that what your plans are mostly about during your education years? And then after that, in the first half of your adult life, it's all about making plans so that you can increase your, in your career, grow in your career so that you can have a more comfortable life for you and hopefully for your children. But then the last half of your life is about making plans to make sure that you have enough to retire on. So again, all I'm saying isn't it just common sense that a lot of the plans you make for your future in this life have to do with money and possessions. And that's why James addresses that. And he says, and the language here is amazingly harsh. Chapter five, verse one, come now you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, probably like me, you were taken aback. <laughs> you read that. I mean, whoa, he's talking to Christians, and certainly James has been harsh in his language before in earlier chapters, but he, he, he almost, you know, talk about fire and brimstone. I mean, th this is an Old Testament prophet speaking to the wealthy. And his language is so strong, so condemning, and so it leads a lot of commentators to ask the natural question, well, is he still talking to people in the church? We've been saying that all along, that even though he has some harsh things to say, he's still talking to people in the church. And that's really the point we said about the book of James, is that James is trying to show who were the hypocrites among the church. People who are making professions of faith in Jesus Christ and claim to be disciples of Christ, but they are living like the world. We've seen that in, in all of our studies in James. And so here though he sounds like he's talking to people outside the church. He's condemning wealthy people outside the church, and many commentators believe that he actually changes the focus of what he's saying to people outside the church. He's clearly describing people that by the way that they're living, he believes they're still under God's judgment and they're destined for destruction. That's the way he's talking to them. But as I've come to get to, get to know James a little better through my studies as we've been working through these passages... I'm not convinced he's not still talking to people in the church. I'm, I'm not convinced that, that, that he's not, that, that, that he's actually addressing people that were in the church, wealthy people that were in the church, but they are so bought into the ways and worldly wisdom and the ways of the world that they're actually doing the things that he claims they're doing here. That's how much they've been blinded by wealth. So I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Whether he's addressing people inside the church or outside the church, bottom line, he's addressing people who have put their hope and have made their plans for this life, and they have no hope for eternity. And there are certainly people like that in churches. But again, I want to be clear, lest somebody misunderstand, that the sin he's addressing is not capitalism, it's not profit-making, it's not being wealthy. Having many possessions, that's not the sin, that's, that isn't a sin, and that's not what he's addressing. What he's addressing is their love of their wealth, their lust for wealth. 
This is the way Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money's not the root of evil. The love of money, the lust for money, is what is the root of all kinds of evil. And that is what is consuming the hearts of these wealthy people that James addresses. In verse 3, he specifically points out something they're doing that is a sin. They are hoarding. We tend to joke about people being pack rats. Well, this is no joke. No joke to James at all. It's a sin of hoarding. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And that word that is translated there, laid up, laid up. You have laid up treasure. It's the same word in Greek that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Sometimes people make the comment that James doesn't talk about Jesus directly, doesn't name him very often, doesn't speak about him directly very often. Clearly, he's, that James is expositing what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount here because the language is almost the same. James says in verse 2, your riches have rotted. And the interesting thing about the word rotted there is it indicates that the riches he's referring to is probably foodstuffs. Food that has been stored up for the future. Kind of like the man with his bigger barns. You see, in our day and age, having food available to us is no big deal because we're rich. We easily have food in our houses. We have food at the fast food place down the road. We don't ever worry about feeding ourselves. We have abundant food available to us. Back in the first century, only the wealthy had food stored up. They're the only ones that could afford to have storehouses full of food. And so he's saying, if that's where your confidence is, be aware that that food is rotting. That food is temporary. Then he goes on to say, your garments are moth-eaten. Your clothes are being eaten up by moths. When I was a kid, we had mothballs, but my grandmother used to put in her drawers where all the clothes were. Those things, you know, I'm, <laughs> sell the clothes once you put mothballs in, it made them stink so bad. But it saved them from the moths, and we don't think about that in this day and age. But... Again, only rich people back in that day had to worry about moths eating their clothes. Why? Because poor people only had one shirt and one pair of pants. If you have one pair of clothes, then, you know, you don't have to worry about clothes in the drawer getting eaten up by moths. So it's, it, it's a rich, you know, what we call a first world problem, you know, moths eating your clothes. And then he goes on in verse thir- 3 to say, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, gold and silver don't literally corrode before you chemistry guys challenge that. He's just, he's using a a word for corruption. It's the idea that even your precious metals will turn to dust and blow away one day. Again, he's bringing them back to that perspective that everything is extremely temporary from an eternal perspective. And he's saying, this is where you put your hope. This is what you make all your plans about. But then it leads not only to sins against God in terms of putting other gods before God, but it actually becomes sin against others. And this is what greed does. We said this last week. Remember we said pride puts you in competition with other people? 
And therefore, pride is inherently against the commandment to love your neighbor. Pride is actually the opposite of loving your neighbor. Well, here we see it when it comes to how you view your wealth. In verse 4, look at how greed leads to abuse of workers. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. This isn't an ancient issue. This is a current issue. It's a labor relations issue. It's, it's a union issue. It's wealthy landowners and company owners, business owners who are taking advantage of their workers, defrauding them, not giving them a living wage while they got rich. That hasn't changed because sinners haven't changed. It says in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. You see, that's what they were doing. They weren't literally stabbing them or killing them. They were, not, they were denying them a living wage. And the word condemned is a language from the courtroom. They were actually using the court system to defraud and to deny their laborers a living wage. You see, that's where greed takes you. Greed makes you so focused on having more and more and more you stop caring about other people. It's the opposite of loving your neighbor. You see, that's what Jesus said. The whole law can be summarized by two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what planning based on greed and wealth and possessions will lead to. In Ezekiel chapter 16 the prophet Ezekiel is talking about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the context of this. And when we hear about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, and talk about fire and brimstone, they really got wiped out by God and his judgment. But they were judged, and we tend to think of the sexual sin that the story from Genesis relates in, 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 in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. But listen to how Ezekiel describes what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. It says, they had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. And so James, addressing that mindset and that way of planning for the future, based on money and possessions, he gives this very solemn warning. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They're like cattle out there eating to their heart's content in the fields the day before the butcher comes for the slaughter. James says in chapter 5, verse 9, which we'll get to next week, the judge is standing at the door. Again, they've left something important out of their planning. The judge is coming. The judge is standing at the door. Judgment is imminent. You should live accordingly and plan accordingly. To hoard and to... Be greedy for the things of this world in the light of the coming judgment is like building a mansion in front of a dam that's about ready to burst. It's like living in the times near the end of the Confederate, you know, the Civil War and living in the South and hoarding Confederate money. How foolish was that to be in the light of the new reality that was about to come? That's the idea that James is trying to get across. You see, the opposite of planning and hoarding for this life 
in wealth and riches. The opposite of that is, like I said, loving your neighbor. And really, when you think, what, you know, it's not wrong to be wealthy, it's not wrong to have a lot of possessions, but how are we to live if God gives us that? And I'm speaking to all of us because in relation to the whole world, we are very wealthy. How are we to live? Well, the scriptural concept is the idea of stewardship, that God has given you resources, but you are to use those resources not selfishly for earthly wants and needs, but you're to use them to build the kingdom of God and to help others, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you're to use your resources that God entrusts into your hands. I thought about this in relation to, I, I, I just got curious. If you were to actually take the human body, your body, my body, and reduce it to the chemical elements, we're mostly water, but if you take the water out and leave all the chemicals, what's your human body worth? And I, when I tried to look that up online doing that amateur reach, research, I came up with a bunch of different numbers. I had a hard time getting anybody to agree, but the numbers I got were the lowest one that I could find was $4.50. And the highest number I could find was $160. So it's somewhere between that when it comes to reducing your body to the chemical elements. That's what your body is worth. But what if you use your body, you, 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 you give your body as a gift to science and give your body as a gift for transplants to other people who need body parts? How much is your body worth then? The number I found was $45 million. And I just think that's such a great illustration of the difference of how we're to live our life in this temporary world. If you live for yourself, you live for this world, you plan for this world, you, 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 you hoard, at the end of your life, your life is worth about 450. But if you live for others, you love God and love others, your life has an infinite value. So let me just end by asking some questions in light of what James has told us. First of all, let me ask you, do you plan like a pagan when you think of your future, or do you plan like a child of God? Do you plan with eternity in mind, or do you plan with the rest of your earthly life in mind? What's the expiration date on the treasures that you're storing up? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your tomorrow, and do you live that way? When you think about the plans that you've made, and just take a moment, think about whatever plans you have for the next year, next five years, 10 years, 20 years, the rest of your life. When you think about the plans that you've made, let me ask this, have you prayed about your plans? Have you prayed consistently about your plans? James is teaching us that attitude of daily dependence upon the Lord, daily dependence upon grace. And the Lord has promised us that if we trust him and submit our plans to him and his lordship, he will bless us. Maybe not in exactly the way we planned, but he will bless us. Proverbs 16, verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Second question about your plans. Are your plans to build the kingdom of God or are your plans about building your kingdom? I was thinking about somebody who died and they were talking about a funeral and I was actually watching video of people who gave testimonies at the funeral and I hate doing that, I shouldn't do that because it always gets me thinking, what would people say at my funeral, you know? I hate that because that's all about this life. 
you know, when you're thinking about the future, I don't want focus on what I, was, I have done, but what God has done maybe through me, sure. I would love to have that testimony, but that goes to the Lord, not to me. Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your own kingdom? Are you trying to leave a name for yourself? Are you trying to leave a legacy for yourself? Or are you building God's kingdom? Is that how you're using the resources that God has placed in your hands? Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Whose kingdom are you building? You know, I've been in ministry for about 30 years, and I can only remember two times when somebody called me to ask me a list of questions about the church that I pastor. To ask questions about what kind of preaching do you have, what kind of worship do you have, what kind of youth ministry do you have. Twice I've had somebody call me before they moved to town to find out about the church because their desire was to determine where God wanted them to connect at church before they worried about where they lived in relation to grocery stores and schools and playgrounds. And I just, I, I love it when it happens because to me that says somebody, is the, 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 they're seeking the kingdom first. They're putting the priority of their spiritual life and their family's spiritual life before their material needs. I often think about what could the church accomplish if every believer was truly poor in spirit the way that Christ teaches us to be humble and poor in spirit and yet also wealthy in earthly things. What a great combination that is. When you're truly humble and dependent upon the Lord and poor in spirit, and yet God blesses you with a bunch of riches, boy, we could get a lot done for the kingdom if that was what the church was like. Then two more questions. First of all, and Jesus mentioned what do you worry about, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Let me ask this. What, when you think of your plans, what do you expect if your plans fail? Because you don't know your future, you're not master of your destiny, you don't know what the Lord has in store. What if your plans fail? What if your career doesn't become what you intended it to be? What if you don't have the family you intended to have? What if you don't have the health you intended to have? What if your plans fail? Do you worry or do you trust? The cure for worry is trusting in God's future grace. It's saying, hey, if my plans fail, if my life doesn't go the way that I pl plotted out, if I fail in my plans, God's grace is sufficient. He will be there for me. He will enable me to persevere if I have to suffer or if I have to go in want. His grace will be sufficient. He will provide. He loves me. And he will use my life for his glory in spite of any failures in life. And then finally... When you think about your plans for the future, who's going to get the glory when you do succeed? Paul said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are your plans for your own glory or are your plans to give glory to God? Let's pray. Father, we do not know what's going to happen in the next moment, let alone the next day, week, month, year, decade for the rest of our lifetime. Our times are in your hands. 
as the psalmist says. And your will is perfect, and we trust your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live in that childlike dependence, the confidence for the future that is based in your plan and not our plans. But more and more, Lord, I pray that our plans would come into conformity with your good and perfect will, that you might use us to build your kingdom and to bring glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our service by turning to our final song, How Deep the Father